Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 1st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As we record this at lunchtime Irish time on Wednesday, the latest news from Gaza is that a limited evacuation of foreign nationals and the severely injured has been taking place at the border crossing with Egypt. The conflict in the Middle East continues to dominate the international agenda and to have an impact on domestic politics in countries across the world. Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole has written a number of pieces on it and he joins us today to discuss some of the issues he's explored. Hi, Fintan. Hi, Hugh. How are you? I'm good. This is not a, a breaking news podcast, but I do think it's worth establishing just where we are right now in this crisis. We're almost four weeks in from the brutal Hamas attack and the massacres of civilians that took place on October the 7th. Now thousands of Palestinians have died in Israel's aerial bombardment, and that's continuing. And just in the last few days, ground incursions have been ongoing since, I think, Friday of last weekend. And this morning, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu issued a statement predicting, and I quote, a long and difficult war. You've been writing this week about where and how that war can possibly lead. Yes, you know, and and um, this is the key question. One of the things that's been extraordinary is that the Israeli government has been pretty much explicit in saying that it has no idea where it's going. You know, it's hard to think of a war where even the sort of putative end state um, has been so explicitly vague. And this might sound like an abstract question, but of course it's not an abstract question because if you don't have a sense of what is the end state that you think is desirable and sustainable, then you also don't have a sense of limits. You don't know what is what is justifiable to do in order to get to that state. I think most people you know, with any kind of humanity, can understand the trauma in Israel from October 7th, um, can understand in particular that for Jewish people, that kind of atrocity, you know, triggers very, very profound historical memories and, and very, very deep sense of vulnerability. And I suppose it's inevitable that there's going to be a lashing out, there's going to be rage, there's going to be a desire for vengeance. Um, I'm not saying those things are good, but it's it's very hard in the circumstances to see how that wasn't going to happen. But the question at this stage is, is sort of a pretty obvious one, right? Which is, okay, how many Palestinians have to die for the sense of vengeance to be satiated? We're now into, what, four, five, six times the numbers, uh, you know, if, if it's the body count you want, um, you know, is there no limits? Is there no ceiling to that? But also, you know, self-interest even for Israel has to come into play or you actually have to think about what are you going to be left with at the end of all of this violence? And it seems obvious enough to me that you're left with 
a desert. You're left with uh, a, a completely destroyed um, city, strip, whatever you want to call that territory, uh, physically. But you're also left with a completely traumatised um, surviving population. And you are not left with a political solution. You're not left with anything that actually says, OK, what's going to happen here? I mean, e- even the most basic question, right, is who's going to rule Gaza? Uh, you know, who does Israel want to rule Gaza? There's no credible answer to that. You know, we, we, we've had the leaks of some Israeli government papers in the last couple of days saying that they, they think somehow that the United States, Britain and France are, are going to send in troops and are, and are going to, you know, control Gaza. You know, all you can say at this stage is good luck with that. You know, I mean, if, 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 if that's what you think is going to happen, um, then there just seems to be an element of fantasy uh, involved in this. And, and, and I said that fantasy is not innocent because it means that without a real sense of what it is Israel is trying to achieve ultimately, uh, there's no moral compass. There's, there's no sense of what, what, is, what is enough in order to achieve what it is you want to achieve. Um, you wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books this week where you, you actually you explore the meaning of that word enough. You go back to a speech by Yitzhak Rabin in the, in the early 1990s when things for a while looked a little bit more hopeful. There seemed to be perhaps some prospect of the, the much vaunted two-state solution coming to pass. Rabin, of course, ended up being assassinated by a political extremist whose, whose views are now actually represented within the, within the current Israeli government. There's been a hardening, there's been a move towards the extremist poles, both on the Israeli side and on the, on the Palestinian side as well, with the rise of, uh, of Hamas and the displacement of Fatah in Gaza, at least, Everything just enough looks a lot harder now than it did in 1994, and it was pretty hard then. Vastly harder, yeah. And you know, we can look back with with uh, with deep regret on the lost opportunities of 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 the 1990s. But there's not the luxury of, of simply saying, "Well, it's it's all gone to hell, and there's no way out." Um, you know, if, if you stand back from this and you think about it from an Israeli point of view, um, Rabin represented a sort of a realism. I mean, Rabin, it's worth remembering was one of Israel's greatest military commanders, right? He was a soldier. He'd, been, he'd had a gun in his hand from the time he was 16. You know, th- this is not a guy who's a sort of hippy-dippy peacenik, you know. He was in charge of the Israeli Defense Forces during the Six-Day War, which is, of course, what led to them taking Gaza and the West Bank. So, you know, he was used to the deployment of violence, you know, and... Rabin, however, said in his speeches in 1993 and 1994 that he had fully understood that security for Israel was not possible without a political process, without a peace process. You know, that, that security, and he was very explicit about this, and I, I quoted him in, in the Irish Times yesterday, you know, he saying, you know, you can put any amount of money you like into planes and tanks and fortifications and armour. You can do all that sort of stuff, and we do and we will, but that will not get you security for your civilians. You know, Israeli civilians will not be safe with all that stuff because the only real path to safety is the sanctity of human life, as he said it, and human life can only be sanctified by a peace process. Right? That was the realistic way of looking at, at Israel's situation in relation to its neighbours. Right? As you said, um, Rabin, of course, was assassinated. He was became this huge hate figure for the Israeli right. Uh, he was murdered. 
And what's happened over time is that uh, essentially the political heirs of Rabin's killers have, have become more and more central to Israeli politics. And one of their strategies, if there was to be no peace process, right, what was the strategy? The strategy was, and it's hard to get your head around this in current circumstances, but the strategy was to bolster and sustain Hamas's control over Gaza, right? So Israel had funded the creation of Hamas um, going right back to the 1980s. It's worth remembering that when Hamas was controlled by the Egyptians, uh, which it was for a long time, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is where Hamas's parents' organization was banned, it was illegal. It was Israel that sort of made it legal and encouraged it, funded it, funded mosques, funded schools. And this, this was in order to split the Palestinian movement, right? So the idea was it's better to deal with Muslim fundamentalists and jihadis than it is to deal with a, with a secular left-wing Palestine Liberation Organization, as it was at the time. And this became very explicit policy under Netanyahu, right? So what we've seen is this really extraordinary gamble, right, which is that you could, in order to stop the possibility of a peace process, and in order to be able to say, well, look, we have no partner for peace. There is nobody we can talk to on the Palestinian side. You keep Hamas going. Uh, Israel explicitly allowed the Qataris to pump huge amounts of money into Hamas. Netanyahu said explicitly to his own party, if you want to avoid a peace process that might lead to a two-state solution, you have to sustain Hamas. You know, this is, this is a policy, right? This, is, this isn't accidental stuff. And the bet was that you could sort of uh, contain and control that violence. So... As people will remember, we've had repeated wars on Gaza. We've had repeated uh, wars from Hamas firing rockets against Israeli civilians. But it's it, it sort of, the idea of this was that it was, to use a phrase that was notorious in Northern Ireland, an acceptable level of violence. Uh, this could be controlled. The phrase that the Israelis used, the terrible phrase they used, was mowing the lawn, right? So Hamas would grow, Israel would go in and you know, unleash mass bombing every so often to mow the lawn. But mowing the lawn was not the same thing as digging up the lawn. The explicit policy was to wage war on Hamas, but keep Hamas in power, right? It's an extraordinary policy. It collapsed, right? So it it collapsed in the most horrendous way on October 7th. Um, the, the complete miscalculation, cognitive failure that was involved in that, I mean, you know, was was made explicit in the most disgusting, depraved way in, in those attacks on, on Jewish civilians. But it collapsed as far as Israel's policy was concerned overnight and out of the blue. So it's left with no other policy other than a peace process, but will not accept the viability or possibility of a peace process, right? So, of course, what's going on simultaneously to what's going on in Gaza is uh, repeated killing of Palestinian civilians on the West Bank, very deliberate provocation of conflict on the West Bank. So this just seems enormously self-destructive. And what's driving it is you have to remember that you have the ultra-right, the, 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 the furthest right, most apocalyptic religious extremists are in power now in Netanyahu's cabinet. And essentially what they want is 
is war. They want to drive the Palestinians out of the West Bank and out of Gaza so that you can, you can do ethnic cleansing and you can declare what they call Eretz Israel, which is, you know, greater Israel. You know, they've always believed that Israel should, uh, all of that land should be Jewish. And, you know, that, that's, that is, a, is, a, is a conflict strategy. It's an ethnic cleansing strategy. It's a war strategy. Even if you leave aside the moral repugnance in, that's involved in that, it's also an impossible strategy, right? So, so, so even if you just look at it, is, is this viable? Could the rest of the world stand by and, and see massive ethnic cleansing from the West Bank and from Gaza? No, it couldn't because everybody knows that that would involve a, a much, much wider war in the Middle East, which would have catastrophic consequences for the, for, for the rest of the world. So that's not a viable strategy. The strategy they had of, of keeping Hamas in place has, has collapsed. The, the only possible strategy is a peace process. But the current Israeli government is completely incapable of, of even imagining that. But one of the things that strikes me about that is that the current Israeli government, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of government of national unity as we speak right now, which was put together in the days after after October the 7th. But because October the 7th, as you have said there, completely ripped away the veil of this uh, policy, which has really been in place uh, for, you know, for, for decades, and it doesn't just involve this entirely security-led approach to Gaza and the West Bank or the, the annexation, the continuing annexation of of, um, of land on the West Bank. It also uh, in- includes a sort of a rapprochement or at least a kind of a thawing of relations with the other key Arab states in the, in the region in the form of things like the Abraham Accords, which were brokered by the Trump administration. And a general sense, and this is really what happened on October the 7th, isn't it? It wasn't just a failure of security. It wasn't just a favor, failure of intelligence. It was a failure of an entire worldview of how Israel could maintain its dominance in, in that part of the Middle East. And that is just gone. And now it seems to me, and tell me what you think, is that Netanyahu sort of looks like a dead man walking politically when gathers, you know, that there's huge dissatisfaction with him in Israel. He's behaving somewhat erratically, uh, refusing to acknowledge any responsibility for what happened himself, but pointing the finger at Shin Bet, the intelligence service and the defense forces. It looks like we're in this state of flux at the top of the Israeli government at just at this point where it is engaged in its biggest military enterprise in decades, which is very, very destabilizing. It's hugely destabilizing. And it's a really important thing to understand here, right, that the the context for all of this um, is the catastrophic failure of Netanyahu, not just in policy terms, but also in basic security terms, right? So... As you say, the strategy has been Gaza's okay, we'll we'll bomb it every so often, but it's basically dealt with the West Bank. We can encourage the most religiously extreme apocalyptic settlers to go in and, and kill Palestinians and, and, and take land. And that's where our military force is going to be. The reason there were almost no soldiers in the south of Israel and that those communities were so vulnerable, I mean, is that, um, you know, they were they were up either on the border with Lebanon or they were in the West Bank. Dealing with conflict, which Netanyahu's government has been provoking. I mean, you know, it's not just that, oh, there's this terrible conflict going on. It's very deliberate strategy of, of provocation. 
provocation in terms of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. I mean, all of these kind of things. So, you know, so, so precisely as you say, there, there was this kind of complacency about, you know, we can, we can just leave all of this aside. We can, we can pursue the most extreme policies. And we know, and it's clearly true, that most of the Middle Eastern Arab governments are sick of the Palestinians, don't want to deal with this mess anymore. You know, we're kind of happy to have some rhetorical commitment to a two-state solution, but also pragmatically wanting to just deal with Israel and, and get that over with. So th- that was indeed the strategy. But remember that a key part of the strategy also was a crushing of Israeli democracy. So the internal logic of this uh, w- is being driven by the fact that Netanyahu is also spectacularly corrupt, that the Israeli courts have found him to be so, and that his only way of staying in power was to bring in the most obnoxious elements in Israeli politics um, to make him prime minister, and then to turn on the courts, right? To basically try to exert political control over the courts to to save his own skin. And that, maybe it hasn't been covered enough, you know, in in a lot of Europe, but I've been following a lot of the, the protest movements that have been going on in Israel long before October 7th. One of the reasons Hamas felt that this was the time to strike, I'm sure, and and their Iranian backers felt, was that Israel was on the brink of, of massive civil conflict itself internally. Uh, the demonstrations, weekly demonstrations, have been absolutely huge. And they have divided Israeli society in, in really fundamental ways. So this uh, division is between the startup nation, you know, which is the self-image of contemporary Israel, the high-tech, highly educated, young, urban Israelis who see themselves as sort of European, Western Democrats and a revanchist, apocalyptic, you know, uh, but but also quite oppressed within Israel. You know, you, you have this, this division between the Ashkenazis and the, and, and the Sephardim. Uh, so there are ethnic divisions, religious divisions, social divisions that have sort of cohered around this whole question of, of Netanyahu's uh, attempt to take control of the courts. And, you know, a lot of people I've spoken to in Israel and, you know, Jewish activists that I know here in, in the United States, I mean, have have been despairing about the future of Israel itself before October 7th, right? So Netanyahu needs war in order to say, okay, let's put all that aside. I am your, I am your leader. I'm the wartime leader. And... Somehow, our thirst for revenge, our anger, our trauma will will reunite us. But there's no great evidence, so far as I've seen from polling, that that's working. Um, it seems clear that the majority of Israelis want Netanyahu out, um, and are not, um, in fact, enthusiastic about a long war in Gaza. You know why? Is because it because it's. Um, it's it's a conscript army, you know. These are their own kids um, who are who are going into this hellhole, and so this is one of the one of the big unknowns in this. Right? Is how long can you prosecute a war with a leader whose credibility has been completely destroyed um, and who does not enjoy the confidence of the majority of the population that you're supposed to be leading? We'll be back after this short break. Isn't the reality then, and I, I need to choose my words carefully here, that the, the appalling, barbaric events perpetrated by Hamas in October the 7th 
when looked at in the cold, ruthless, inhumane calculus of asymmetric warfare, set out to achieve an objective and have achieved that objective in terms of destroying the Israeli policy of the last decade, enticing the Israeli defence forces into what could well turn out to be a trap for hundreds or thousands of, of, of Israeli soldiers. And we know from their behaviour, Hamas, that the, the devastating consequences for the Palestinian people of Gaza don't seem to be very high on their agenda. I think that last point is crucial. You know, so we, we've been talking about the lack of a, of a long-term um, viable strategy in Israel. But of course, Hamas has no viable long-term strategy either. You know, it's a jihadist, apocalyptic, misogynist, authoritarian movement. You know, its goal is to have a caliphate, a Muslim caliphate um, over all of Israel and Palestine that will, you know, join up with a putative caliphate in, in, in Egypt and Syria, you know, and, and that's, that's where the future lies. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's very obviously uh, completely, f- I mean, again, even if you thought that was okay, you know, which obviously I don't, it's fantasy stuff, you know, it's a toxic fantasy. And the, the key thing here is that, so it's kind of mirroring. So on the Israeli side, you have Netanyahu using the violence to paper over the profound divisions within Israeli society. And Hamas was, you know, using October 7th to stake its claim to be the voice of the Palestinians in general, to be the movement that represents Palestinians. And so it's it's also exerting internal control and wants to finish the job. So Israel has weakened the Palestinian Authority so much. To be honest, the Palestinian Authority has weakened itself so much by its incompetence and corruption. Hamas wants to finish the job, right? And to say, you know, we we are the the, the representatives of the Palestinian people. That's that's what they're at. This is fairly obvious, I think, from the outside. Anybody watching it objectively can can see what they're at. And part of what they're willing to do in relation to this is is not just murder Jewish people in the most horrific ways, it's to knowingly bring Israeli violence onto civilians in in Gaza. Um, Anybody who has any illusions about Hamas as a sort of liberation front, I think, is completely mistaken. So the very fact that it, it, it knowingly you know, created circumstances in which Israel would, you know, have a a violent response and that that violent response would inevitably, in the circumstances of Gaza, be directed primarily at at women and children. It tells you all you need to know, really, about the, the, the underlying moral sensibility that's at work in, in, in relation to Hamas. One thing that's really important to remember here, and it gets lost, I think, in a lot of this, is that if you look at polling, because there's been no elections, of course, in Gaza since 2006, but if you look at polling, if you look at the polling for the elections that Hamas won in 2006, all the exit polling said people were voting for Hamas, but largely because the Palestinian Authority, the Fatah movement that was at the heart of that, had become so corrupt and they wanted to protest about corruption. All that exit polling showed that a large majority of people in Gaza want a two-state solution. They don't think that they're going to eliminate or obliterate Israel, they want a Palestinian state. This continues to be the case. So there's there's a lot of tracking polling that's been done, and it continually shows the same kinds of results, that actually 
you know, what, what the Gazans want is, is a peace process and a two-state solution. But Hamas does not want that. I mean, you know, Hamas mirrors the sort of apocalyptic, all-or-nothing religious fervor that we've got in parts of the Israeli government as well. And that's what makes this so catastrophic, you know, that it's, it's moving the, the, the power dynamic towards the very, very worst elements of both societies. And the only possibility here is the international community. You know, laughable as that idea uh, has, has often become. I mean, who else can, can move in and say there has to be a peace process? There is no other possibility of an end game here that is not a political one. And yet there is huge division among the international community and particularly among the sort of the Western countries who uh, who Israel would look to first and foremost, uh, both within the European Union and to a certain extent in the United States. I might ask you because you're in the United States right now about that in a minute. But there are there are clear, not just strategic, but ethical divisions between people in their understanding of the nature of this conflict right now that, you know, I think most people listening to this would agree that if a child dies as a result of a bullet in its head or as a result of a of a missile um the child is still dead but there are valid questions to be asked about the nature of the sort of industrialized warfare which Israel is currently conducting and which many western countries have conducted themselves over the years in fact they invented it and whether there is a difference between what is i think rather chillingly called collateral damage and intentional murder And I don't think a lot of people, there is no shortage of certain people who are incredibly strongly held in their views and shout them from the rooftops everywhere. But I think a lot of other people are quite troubled about these questions and haven't necessarily come to a firm view on them. Yeah, you know, um, what's happened, well, it's already been there, but it's the ante has been upped on it hugely, of course, it's just tribalisation, you know, that, that what you think about Israel and Palestine is not so much about Israel and Palestine. It's 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 a reflection of which tribe you think you belong to and 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 how you identify yourself. And this is very much the case in in America, but I think I think also around around a lot of Europe and of course in Ireland. I mean, for God's sake, we've we've got you know um, loyalists waving Israeli flags and Republicans waving Palestinian ones, as if somehow Israel and Palestine is a sort of proxy for the Irish problem. You know, we know this stuff and we we've seen it and. Uh, it's very, very, very bitter. I'm, I'm, I'm in the states at the moment. Uh, it's, it's terrible. You know, it's really, really awful stuff. It's awful stuff because there are two things that feed into it. Um, one is anti-Semitism. You know, you cannot discuss any of these things or leave out the history of anti-Semitism in the West. You know, it, it, it is a characteristic of Western culture, Western society, Western history, and it's there. And there are people who, who do, you know, use completely legitimate criticism of, of Israel as a, as a sort of vehicle for hatred of Jews, right? That's there. We, we, we can't ignore it. And then on the other side, there's a, I think, completely disreputable um, tendency on the part of sort of right-wing pro-Israeli people to say, if you criticize an Israeli government, you are an anti-Semite. Right. Uh, and this, to me, is a terrible, terrible uh, abuse of the real history of anti-Semitism and the seriousness of anti-Semitism. You know, that it's, it's, but in, in both cases, it's sort of being deployed as a tool and, and uh, no ability to stand back and actually take a, 
a tragic view of, you know, why did Israelis need a homeland? Why did Jewish people need a homeland? You know, anybody with a stim of wit can understand that, you know. And on the other side, why did Palestinians have to pay the price for what was essentially a European horror, you know, a, a horror created largely within Europe, which, of course, um, culminated with the Holocaust. You have to hold two things in your head at the same time. You have to hold in your head the idea that this is a case where two rights make something very, very wrong indeed, you know. And that's very difficult in the current climate, right, is to say that there are actually two two genuine forces at work here which we must try to balance in our heads. And what do we do, what should we do when, when you know, we're drawn between these, these different realities? You know, the only thing you can hold on to is the universality of, 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 you know, what Rabin called the sanctity of human life. You know, the creation of Israel was a product of the United Nations, you know, and it was the United Nations that decided to partition Palestine and how it would be partitioned and to create the state of Israel, you know. And it was part of a process which was also... You know, trying to create, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, trying to create after the catastrophes of the Second World War and the Holocaust, an idea that the only thing we can hold on to as human beings is the equality of the importance of human life. What we've seen, and Netanyahu has repeatedly used this, right? So again and again and again, in almost every speech he's made that I've seen, he's used civilization versus barbarism, you know. Uh, this is a fight between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism. Anybody with, again, any historical awareness, you know, when you hear that, you despair, right? Because that's a way of dehumanizing the other, you know. Um, and of course, historically, anybody can be the civilian and anybody can be the barbarian. You know, what universal human rights tried to say was there are barbaric acts. There are barbaric things that are done to people, you know. It's not about barbarian peoples or barbarian cultures or barbarian religions. Every culture has has produced barbarism. Barbarism, if there is a divide between barbarism and civilization, it runs within the societies and within cultures, not between them. That was what, you know, the the whole post-war ethic was trying to say. But unfortunately, for many people, once you establish that idea that there are civilians and barbarians, then the death of a barbarian child is not equal to the death of a, of a, of a civilized child. You know, we've seen some of this stuff, you know, with, with um, the Israeli firm that, that sacked a woman in Dublin for uh, expressing views that were not acceptable. But, you know, some of the stuff that the Irish Times reported on in relation to that, you know, to, to talk about that... In um, social media posts, we should stress the westernity, I hadn't heard this phrase before, the westernity of, of, of Israelis against Palestinians. Basically saying, stress the fact that Israelis are people like us, they look like us, whereas Palestinians are not. You know? and, and once you create that, you get, as you were saying, you know, a lot of capacity to, to shout at each other uh, and, and to scream at each other and to dehumanize each other, um, but not a lot of capacity for rational discourse. Um, I mean, it's very trivial, but, you know, I've, I've already lost friends in America, you know, good, good long-term friends who won't speak to me anymore because I've tried to write some of these things in, in the Irish Times and elsewhere, you know, to, to simply to say them is, is 
seen as uh, you know making you part of the enemy um and 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 some people just won't talk to you anymore you know to say what Fintan? what kind of thing well the things that i've been i've been saying here mm. you know the things that i've just just the stuff that i published in 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 the Irish times you know just simply trying to say uh that there is no future in in the dehumanization of the palestinian population that there is no evident sense of an end game uh, in in Israel's actions and therefore no sense of calibration to you know what is it okay to do and uh, you know I have used the phrase collective punishment um, and and that's the no no you're not supposed to say that this is collective punishment uh, because of course Jewish people understand exactly what collective punishment means um, you know and 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 for very understandable reasons they don't want to hear the idea that Israel might be engaged in collective punishment in Gaza. I would wish it were not so. I mean, I, you know, I'm actually quite pro-Israeli. I, I really, you know, w- w- wish that this was not what was happening. But remember, it was the Israeli government that came out almost immediately after October 7th and said, we are cutting off the water, we are cutting off the food, we are cutting off the electricity, you know. We are going to level this place, we, we are going to flatten it, you know. That kind of stuff um, wasn't coming from pro-Palestinian propagandists. It was coming from the Israeli government itself. Cutting off food and water is collective punishment. You know, cutting off electricity is collective punishment. It, you know, uh, before we even get into the ethics of of mass bombing, you know, Israel would clearly say, you know, as it did with the. The bombing of the refugee camp yesterday, it would say, well, you know, we, we yes, we, we might have killed a lot of people, but we did so in order to get at one Hamas leader, and that, that's okay, you know. That is, um, if you're going to apply that logic, you have to accept that it would be okay for the other side to do it to you. Well, it's the, it's the, it's the logic of Bomber Harris and the RAF and Dresden in the 1940s, isn't it? It's a logic which has been applied by, by many countries over the last century. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's chilling that the where we really had mass bombing being tried out, you know, was in the nineteen twenties in the in the Middle East. You know, it was a kind of uh, playground for for these theories. But Bomber Harris, um, you know, was was um, before he was in the Second World War. You know, he was active in. Um, in bombing Palestinians during the Arab revolt, you know, um, Winston Churchill was a was a huge uh, supporter of the use of of mass bombing in in Iraq. Uh, you, you know, so yes, and mass bombing brings with it the notion that first of all, uh, that killing from a distance and from a height is is somehow better or less uh, depraved than killing close up. Um, which, by the way, is is not what people thought before. So, you know, if you go back to the First World War, most of the a lot of the sort of moral objection in the First World War was, you know, it's it's even more horrific to be killed from a distance. You know, so so many people were being killed by artillery five six miles away. You know, this is worse than somehow close up fighting. I, I, I don't think there's a distinction, a moral distinction, to be quite honest. But but that, you get that sort of that runs through it. And also there has to be the idea that the people who are under the bombs are are not as important as us. You know, they're... If you go back to the Second World War, the image of the Second World War, you mentioned Bomber Harris. So uh, in, in, in England, for example, there would still be a very, very profound sense that the Germans bombing London, the Blitz, or, you know, bombing Coventry, bombing Liverpool was horrific and a war crime. And 
but also an understanding that it didn't make us weaker. It didn't achieve any military purpose. It made us stronger. You know? Sure, sure. There's been many, many examples of that. Over and the then I've said that us doing it to them is is okay. You know. Can I ask you just in relation to something you said there? I think it's it, that, that whole clash of civilizations idea, which is one of the things as Israeli politics have changed over the last twenty years. Uh, Netanyahu and other right wing leaders have kind of glommed onto this, and you've had these strange marriages of convenience with the Victor Orbans of the world and the right wing of the Republican Party, who are obviously all very keen on a kind of clash of civilizations uh, thesis. And that seems extremely unhelpful. It also seems kind of unhelpful to me as well. One of the definitions of, of anti-Semitism is holding Israel to a higher standard. And I think you do see that sometimes on what you might call the other side of the argument. I mean, obviously, at the moment, the events that are happening right now are horrendous in Gaza. But there always, in some quarters, seem to be more interest in what was happening to Palestinians in Gaza than what was happening to Syrians in Aleppo or what was happening under the regimes of Saudi Arabia or Iran. So there is a a valid argument of double standards there, too. There absolutely is, you know, and and this is where the sort of um, subterranean and sometimes not so subterranean anti-Semitism does does feed into it. You know, Uh, I, I mean, for God's sake, we, you know, we had Vladimir Putin you know, saying that it was, you know, it was terrible to be bombing civilians, you know, I mean, for God's sake, you know, the double standards are absolutely disgusting. And, and yes, there is a sense that, uh, that, that, you know, some people are very, very interested in the crimes that Israel commits and have no interest whatsoever in, in um, crimes that are supported by, by Putin, by, by you name it, including America, you know, I mean, Americans have very little sense of, of, their own responsibility for 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 war crimes in Iraq or, or or Afghanistan, for example, you know that's just kind of wiped out. It doesn't it doesn't feature in 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 most of the discourse. So you know th- this is so riddled with hypocrisy that there is this um, temptation just to say, look, there's nothing we can do about it. It's all just uh, hypocritical. You, you you have to remind yourself, you know, that there are extraordinary people in Israel. Um, I, I, there are extraordinary people on the Palestinian side who have been working tirelessly and against all the odds over and over and over again to hold open human spaces, to hold open a genuine sense of civility, um, to try to work for peace, to try to re- rehumanize each other, to try to keep connection going. You know, w- w- one of the many, many horrific aspects of October 7th, of course, was that, you know, the... The, the people who were attacked on October 7th, m- many of them, including some of the hostages, and we saw the, the old lady who was, who was thankfully released this week, you know, the, 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 they were people who were, you know, heroic in, 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 in trying to maintain human relations and goodness and decency uh, across the, the Jewish-Palestinian divide. And we, we, we abandon those people, right, if we, if we simply say, it's all hypocrisy, and there isn't, there isn't, there's nothing here except a clash of civilizations and, and pure raw power. Um, th- th- so uh, morally, I don't, I don't think we, we can, we can abandon those people. Also, politically, um, self-interest is at work here. You know, um, the uh, consequences of where this might be going are catastrophic. Obviously, for Palestine. Obviously, in, you know by blowback for Israel, but actually for the world. We, 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 if there's one thing we know about the Middle East, it is that it is not a regional 
conflict. It, it cannot and never has been uh, contained within its own geographical area. It, it, it sucks in much, much larger forces, and it has immensely unpredictable consequences around the world. Um, it, if you, I, I'm sadly old enough to remember the 1970s. Uh, if you want to understand why the social democratic consensus collapses in the Western world in the 1970s, you cannot do so without thinking about the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago, which was the last time, of course, that Israel experienced this sort of trauma and shock. Um, the Yom Kippur War set off um, the reaction of the Arab countries to raise oil prices, you know, to, to, to punish the West for its support for Israel. This led to hyperinflation in 1973, and then again we had a second round of this in 1979. Uh, that, you know that 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 sort of destroyed um, whole w ways of doing things in in the Western world, whole industrial bases, um, the, the the bargaining power of trade unions, the whole you know the the, the whole shift that happens around 1979-1980 in the Western world. I'm not saying the only factor, of course, is the Middle East, but you cannot understand it if you, if you don't factor in the wars in the Middle East. And this will be true again, right? We, 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 we don't know what these consequences precisely will be, but we will be idiots not to think that there are consequences. And this is why, even if you leave aside all of the really urgent moral questions, all of the horror... The self-interest of, of the international community, for want of a better phrase, uh, is, 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 is so obvious here. You know, it, 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 it has to seek an end to this violence and it has to seek the, you know, a, a international peace conference that actually tries to deal with this, uh, this horror which has been allowed to fester now. You know, uh, and the illusion that if you just let it let it fester, it's going to go away. I think um, has has been completely shattered. If there's anything good that can come out of this horror, it, it has to be an urgency to actually deal with it now. Fintan, thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>